this episode of the GX podcast, we're going to be discussing legacy systems, the need to modernize and how automation can play a role in your successful transformation. I'm joined today by Stuart McGuigan, former CIO of Department of State, Johnson & Johnson, CVS Health, Liberty Mutual Insurance Company, and Galaxy's president and COO, Sandeep Ngangopadye. Thanks for joining us today. So today we're going to be tackling the big topic of legacy systems. Let me um, just start off the, with some stats to set the stage. Um, it's interesting to me that the average COBOL programmer is at this point in time over 60 years old. There are about 50 programming languages in use today. And about 71% of Fortune 500, uh, Fortune 500 companies uh, are utilizing mainframes. What kind of this adds up to is there, it is an estimated that there are about 2.4 trillion lines of legacy code in use today. So some pretty, pretty startling information. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, we all know how we got here. Um, these systems brought a lot of value to, to organizations. They accelerated many companies' uh, growth. Um, but at one point, I think that there, you could make a case that these systems begin to hold us back. They're either dated, um, dated interfaces, you're starting to see connectivity issues, security, uh, people want to migrate to the cloud. There's lots of, of um, concerns out there. So let's just jump right in, Sandeep, and you know, what are some of the business challenges that technology groups are trying to solve by upgrading their systems? Thanks, Gracie. That problem is very meaningful uh, in terms of both size and complexity. And uh, here is the reality that companies that have been around for a while, they have legacy systems. Those legacy systems help them expand, scale up, excel at what they do. That's how they became big. But over time, how these legacy systems are deployed, how they're managed, the various interdependencies among these systems uh, make the management of those systems uh, challenging in two different ways. One is that the total cost of ownership is higher, more infrastructure, more changes, more people to maintain, more break fixes, so on and so forth. But also um, arguably as importantly, uh, they are less competitive. And let me explain what I mean by that. So suppose if you have collected technology over a longer period of time, and uh, what happens is you want to make a change or you want to roll out something new, you have to consider the dependencies across your landscape. Otherwise you can disrupt your business operations. So when you have another company next to you, which was founded pretty recently, uh, you know, you would think that they would be at a disadvantage because they don't have a lot of, um, you know, technology platforms serving their business, but it often is the other way around. Uh, they are nimble, they're agile, they have a very low technology footprint and therefore cost of ownership. Um, they are able to plug and play little components, uh, best of breed, they're very often cloud native. So as a result, they have more flexibility and they're able to move faster. So to some extent, 
these large legacy systems that uh, companies have accumulated over a period of time uh, and that arguably drove that success uh, starts holding them back. And that kind of uh, limitation of flexibility, it means that they truly, um, you know, find it difficult to be, to disrupt the marketplace. Uh, and you can see that in the uh, market, it's uh, very often the smaller companies, especially in the technology space, but now even uh, more so in other traditional, uh, you know, uh, industry verticals like healthcare and so on and so forth, even financial services, where these uh, smaller companies are able to make significant gains in the industry uh, with a smaller footprint and uh, agility. So what does that mean for um, the larger organizations that have significant installed capacity of technology? Uh, you know, the, the, the challenge uh, continues because it's, it's not just that, hey, I have this huge ship and it takes me time to, you know, move it around and change course. Uh, it is also that even while I'm doing it and I have all these different capabilities and reporting and uh, all kinds of uh, control systems, things still slip through because these things are not just, uh, you know, they're complex, they're complicated. And uh, in terms of the true uh, essence of the theory of constraints, what you'll see is that in order to deliver services, uh, they do have to sometimes, um, you know, um, balance uh, the prioritization and needs for compliance, for uh, agility, for cost. Um, you often have to choose one over the other. It's not that you can always build everything at the same time. And that means things still slip through. So for a technology leader in one of those organizations, they don't want to be on top of uh, sitting on top of systems and platforms like that. And in, in a, you know, even though their departments are incredibly skilled and they're performing huge due diligence to make sure everything runs correctly, uh, you know, they are not able to uh, produce uh, the same level of uh, agility and agile output as uh, you know, some of these newer companies. And by extension, that means that uh, often they are perceived as holding back their organization's uh, roadmap uh, to success and to competitive differentiation versus leading the charge and saying, hey, here are new things, here are new technical solutions, here are new technologies we can leverage to disrupt the marketplace. Uh, uh, you know, and that's basically uh, where uh, they want to go. And that, I think, is a significant challenge faced by uh, many of the large companies uh, in the world today. So, Stuart, if modernization at the end of the day is so important, um, it's, it's obviously so critical. Why are, why are we hesitant to update um, legacy systems? I'm, you know, I, I read your credentials. You've been in this position. So um, you think it would be like, just get it done. <laughs> What's holding people back? <laughs> yeah, it'd be great if we could just get it done. But I think, you know, Sandeepan characterized the situation well. Uh, touching your legacy systems can be one of the most frightening things that a CIO attempts to do. It's hard not to view these old systems as ticking time bombs uh, for all the reasons that Sandeepan highlighted. But 
But one bad mistake, because you didn't understand a block of code that was written 25 years ago, one mistake and you can't bill your customers, one mistake and you can't pay your supply chain partners. So although these are not glamorous systems, they're back office systems, the consequences of uh, not being reliable uh, in these systems, the consequences of outages or logic defects is just tremendous. And then you look at, well, okay, what does it take to transform these systems since it is critical that we get to be more agile, more responsive? Well, it's expensive and not just in terms of the check you need to write, it's expensive in terms of the amount of subject matter expertise it consumes to understand what you already do and know. And those SMEs are otherwise focused on serving customers or innovating. And so the degree to which you need to pull those people out of their day jobs and have them focus on just recreating the understanding of legacy systems, uh, the more opportunity cost you're incurring. And then, yeah, and then with any people process, uh, you're gonna have defects, you're gonna have errors and, and it's not an indictment of the people, it's just manual processes have a certain defect rate. Um, and you can try to drive them to various levels of sigma to get them down, but each defect has a cost. So here you are, your most critical systems, potentially most disruptive. You're in a process that is people intensive, that creates errors. And then it can take years to do this because how, how much time do you have uh, with your subject matter experts? How much funding do you actually have to get this thing done? And so the time it takes to remediate your legacy system is tremendous. I was talking to one CIO and she says that her estimate of the range that it takes, range in time that it takes to remediate these systems is from years to never, <laughs> even if you intend to do it. And so you start this project fraught with peril, high resource consumption, and a fair amount of uncertainty whether you're actually going to get to the finish line. And at the end of the day, it's I mean, it's your job. That's 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 what's keeping people, I imagine, up at night. Is is that I'm going to start this, and like you said, it can take years to never. And by the time you're done, am I am I really up to date now? <laughs> at the end of the day, um, Sandeep, and you know, understanding that this is the you know, as Stuart said, um, or maybe I'll paraphrase, the backbone of a lot of this organization's. Um, what are some successful techniques you're seeing to mitigate these issues of, of you know, being labor exp um, intensive, expensive, error prone, and, you know, taking so long? Uh, you know, um, there are models where you rely on technology to deliver the future state of technology. Um, this is something we learned uh, back in the day, uh, and some of us came from uh, whether uh, you have uh, the Department of Defense, Ministry of Defense, nuclear power, flight avionics, typical industries where things, uh, you know, you can't afford to go wrong. And, um, and significant processes and infrastructure and therefore cost is in place to ensure that. Um, you know, there is a process called independent verification and validation, and it's called independent because the verification and validation is done outside of the project team, which uh, 
cross-references and cross-authenticates everything that is being done to build or manage um, systems and processes. And in that situation, uh, it's not just enough that I'm testing what I have built. Um, every piece of what I have built has to be spoken for. It's, it's cross-validation. Every line of code must justify itself kind of thing. And that is uh, produces an incredible overhead. So when uh, some of us uh, started supporting um, Stuart, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago now, uh, we um, came across this unique problem in the healthcare industry that um, you know, these systems are impactful in the sense that they can help or harm uh, human lives. But at the same time, the kind of budgets for verification validation that are typically there in say a defense sector project or program do not exist in the commercial sector. And so the way we address that issue is through what I was saying, we had to build technology to address that technology challenge uh, because it cannot be done manually. And that's not just a question of cost. It's also a question of time. Uh, to the point that if you put an army of people to try and um, uh, you know, challenge uh, every line of code and every branch of logic through complex systems, by the time they have done one pass, the system has already changed. So what I'm basically saying is, it's not even a question of cost, it's a question of feasibility, of viability. Viability. So taking that same rigor that we use to put a man on the moon and applying that to in a commercial sense, applying that to, you know, coming up with a way that we can do that in a, in a, in, a, in your words, a, fe a feasible manner. That's right. And over the last 20 odd years, we have had to invent new solutions for that. Um, and, um, you know, we have, uh, you know, done a lot of work in then growing those core capabilities. And I'm sure we'll uh, cover some of those, um, you know, approaches and solutions today. But um, our belief is that um, in, you know, especially for the United States to be, um, you know, continue to be as innovative as it is, um, even today, the most um, innovative um, large enterprises, um, if you go by market cap and you talk about Amazon or Tesla, they're innovating every day. And that's happening in the United States. And so far as technology is concerned, specifically in, you can say information technology, uh, it is important for the United States to embrace this level of technology, delivering technology, AKA automation. It's important for uh, the United States to also understand that when you do that, even your resource mix changes. And what you'll find is that uh, there will be many more jobs, for example, created in the underserved communities versus uh, offshoring, uh, because the kind of resources that will um, operate these factories, the you know technology automation factories, uh, would very well be uh, you know people from local communities, because you're not at that point of time focused on labor arbitrage. You're not focused so. The impact of looking at this is not just that, hey, we can get past the constraints of legacy systems and we don't need to dump them. We don't need to, uh, you know, we, we don't need to give a prescription 
to a technology organization and say, dump everything and start fresh. And that's how you're going to be innovative. No, you can carry the past uh, and, um, you know, bring it to the future. Uh, but you are doing it uh, while you're also uh, creating very effective and top-notch jobs. Uh, so there is uh, there are multiple symbiotic relationships that uh, augur well for the United States and where we are going over the next several years. I know that it's interesting to bring up the jobs. I know there's a, a lot of concerns that um, uh, the job market is going to be a problem in our in our recovery. But you know the the economy right now is is breaking back up again. We're a lot of um, countries are getting through COVID and and now people are. We're having to get back to work and we're um, everywhere we're talk they're talking about labor shortages so I think this is uh, the technology industry is no is no stranger to that um, and we've had to come up with ways to, to solve that so um Stuart you know just flipping this back to you for a second what would be the benefit to not only updating your legacy systems but using this um, technology uh, um, I'll call, but using automation, as Sandy been said, to accomplish your goal. You know, I was thinking about this, and I don't think there's a single part of the systems development process that couldn't be dramatically accelerated, that, that wouldn't be dramatically improved in terms of quality, and wouldn't see a dramatic decrease in cost. And if you think about in the last 10 plus years, what we've done with uh, maturing software-defined infrastructure, software-defined data centers. We've sort of taken the creation of infrastructure capacity servers of various sorts uh, and moved it from a sort of bespoke model, a cottage industry where there may be a methodology, there may be a checklist, but people are standing these things up and saying, no, we're gonna create software. We're gonna take the time up front to create software so that every instance of infrastructure is essentially perfect. And then, you know, regulated industries like uh, Johnson and Johnson and the federal government where I've been uh, require a level of quality in setting up infrastructure that is extremely high. And so when we were first moving to cloud, there was a fear that we're we're somehow entering the wild west and uh, people are gonna be taking their corporate credit card and buying capacity on Amazon in you know, the public cloud in an unconstrained way. So instead we had to say, no, we're, we're gonna dramatically improve every aspect of infrastructure, including compliance and auditability. And once we get the software defined infrastructure capability, we will never have another infrastructure audit finding again. Because if you validate the software that creates the infrastructure and you make sure that you, know, you automatically store the artifacts, that way when the FDA comes in and looks at what you've done, they see just uh, you know, instance after instance of perfect infrastructure. Uh, the artifacts are easy to find. And so our goal of becoming the most boring audit possible, I think was realized through this uh, and, and now the leap is, how do we take that to configuring SaaS systems? How do we take that to software and system development? And so what Galaxy has done is create the machinery, created the technology to 
drive systems development in a similar way that infrastructure is seen from, from software. So software defined systems development, I think is the next is the next wave. And these techniques, which can allow you to represent every single business rule, every single data element, starting with your legacy systems, but as you're asking, moving forward, representing all of your business logic and systems uh, in one machine readable repository, and then being able to use that to automatically generate new code to, to take all that stuff that you have embedded in your legacy systems, uh, use tools to extract it so you don't have that big burden on SMEs. But then once that logic is represented in this repository, then every new configuration, every new change is generated through software and you've remo removed the human element that can introduce defects. You've removed a great deal of the cost. You've removed a great deal of the cycle time. So for constantly changing software systems, when you're adding new customers, you're adding new products, you're adding new services, whatever, where there's just sort of a constant churn uh, and you have a manual process and a certain amount of error in that process, you can completely automate that once this is set up. And I think that's really transformative. And then once you have that, there's a whole list of things that are too long for a single podcast to get into. But, you know, the ability of perfect data traceability, the, per the perfect traceability between business intent, requirements, specifications, code, test conditions, all perfectly traceable, interrogatable, uh, auditors can see them. So, you know, the goal to make infrastructure audits boring, that was realized. Now, can we make audit of business systems just as straightforward, just as quote unquote boring for the auditors because we have a closed loop system that uses technology and software to create new technology and software for customers, for business users, et cetera. So, okay, so a couple things. So you threw around the word perfect a lot. Yes. Is that, is that, you know, is that something we've realized that perfect documentation, that perfect view of your legacy systems, is that, uh, you know, um, available? Is that something we can accomplish? So in a, in a prior uh, life with uh, working with Galaxy, we had to consolidate enormous disparate claim systems, depending on your calendar, five, six, seven claim systems. And we had to migrate all the logic uh, for billions of dollars of drug spend <clears throat> to the target platform in a way that not a single customer, client, uh, insured, insured member would even notice. And that was the bar. And so this technique uh, re requires work to set it up. But once you set it up and you automate the translation of the logic, once you set it up and you automate the creation of the test bed so you can test every and or you know else juncture in the code and produce those for the clients, we got to a point where there were, there were zero defects introduced by uh, the, the translation of legacy to new systems. There were defects that uh, occurred, but they were defects we wanted to have because they existed in the legacy systems. And if we truly wanted to reproduce the exact experience, let's just say a copay was a nickel off, well, we wanted that to show up in the new system. We could go back and fix it later, but we really wanted a seamless uh, translation of legacy to new systems. And one of the most senior uh, business operational executives who was one of the most phenomenal leaders 
of operations that I've ever worked with later said long after I was gone uh, that this is the single most successful legacy transformation project he was ever aware of. And it was because of that complete lack of disruption. Software, every copy is a perfect representation of the previous copy. Uh, once you get it automated, every new copy is free. That's why the software business is so profitable. Um, you know, if you have defects in your source, in your uh, legacy systems, they'll show up in your new systems unless you try to do something different. But you won't introduce new defects in the transformation process. And that's what's so critical. Um, and back to what we were discussing earlier uh, is allows some CIOs to sleep at night when they're talking about affecting their the backbone of their business. It gives them a little bit of comfort that um, this is going to be done, as you said, without disruption. Well, CIOs never sleep at night, but this will be one less reason that they'll <laughs> be thinking of as they're counting sheep. Uh, there's enough things out there to worry about. It's nice to take one thing off the table. Okay. Okay. Um, so really then, and kind of a, a little bit of a wrap-up question is, you know, why isn't everybody doing it? Um, and what are, what are the keys to, to the success? We've just, you know, we've said it's, it's really software defined legacy transformation or software defined development. Um, so why isn't everybody doing it? Everyone is not doing it. I mean, it does take time to understand what this could be. Uh, Galaxy is a first mover in this. So it's going to take time to understand what this is, because as I said earlier, this is a frightening thing to undertake. And now I'm going to undertake something frightening in a, in a brand new way. Uh, so, you know, people want to see it work first. So I think, you know, the, the first movers will, uh, in terms of companies, will enjoy a tremendous competitive advantage, but I think it'll follow fast uh, after that. And then it's just explaining it. I mean, this is, uh, this is complex and, it, and at a high level, it can seem like magic instead of the incredibly rigorous engineering that it really is. I mean, this creates a closed loop system of going from legacy code, data, everything you have, infrastructure, and creates a closed loop and migrating it to your target systems and infrastructure that eliminates uncertainty. And this is what we all learned that computer systems are. They're deterministic, but boy, they don't feel deterministic in the wild. Uh, this for the first time really has, uh, Galaxy has created a comprehensive way to do this. It still takes work, but a fraction of the work it otherwise takes to migrate your legacy systems and creates a whole new world of opportunities for speed, quality, cycle time, and the ability to serve your customers and your business partners. So uh, it's a big change. And I think uh, it will, once it gets adopted in an industry, I think you'll see a lot of fast followers because no one wants to be behind. You can't, I mean, I don't think you can be. Yeah, and if you're know, if you you're in the airline industry and your competitors have eliminated, your competitors eliminated the, the back office constraints and now can uh, digitize the experience at the, you know, yeah. the speed of a Google or Amazon, well, you, you, you better do that pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and your thoughts? Yeah, I think, um, you know, good question about how we get others to do it. Um, there, I think there are two parts to it. One is the technology, right? We had to solve 
two specific problems in doing this. Uh, one is that in any sizable organization, and this is a problem of sizable organizations, right? If, if you have a very small, simple organization, you don't need this level of engineering. If you don't have high volumes of data, to Stuart's point, if you're not in a regulated space where accuracy maybe in your industry doesn't matter that much, uh, in situations like that, you don't need this level of engineering. But if you do, if you have that level of size and volume, um, typically no business process is um, you know, contained within a single technology, right? So if you're going to um, do any transaction or your operations are doing any process or your customers are interacting with you, um, you are going through multiple systems. There's front end, there's back end, there are databases, reporting systems, billing systems, downstream, correspondence systems, all kinds of things. And the while there are any number of technologies out there that will to introspect inside of a system and say, okay, how are you really working? Uh, there is no solution for how you do this across different technologies, uh, what we call process boundaries, um, you know, uh, that support a given business process. So that's one problem we had to solve. And as you know, we call that Dash and Maps. The other thing that Dash and Maps had to do is that uh, doing it one time isn't good enough. Right, because um, once you have been, even when you are transforming these systems, you can't say business stop working, go away for a couple <laughs> of years. I'm going to transform these systems, and then we'll talk. No, right. And many times these systems have uh, black boxes. They may be some off-the-shelf thing they use where they don't have access to the source code for that piece. They may have for interfaces. They may not have for certain data models oh, or okay. whatever. So in situations like that we need to be very good at identifying the surface, right? Where there are integrations, interactions with others. And we need to be able to track these over time. So as the code changes, as logic changes, as products change, we need to uh, be in a position where we can update our maps and not just pave over these maps because the maps over time, uh, uh, you know, extract, um, as Stuart said, knowledge, the tribal knowledge of an organization from SME's minds, it's being externalized into this logical systems repository, uh, an incredible asset for the company, because that's literally the secret sauce in terms of how that company performs and what makes that company different. So those two inventions um, uh, were uh, half of the problem. The other half that people have to solve for uh, is that uh, many um, organizations that do um, software services, right? Uh, when you do transformation, typically you engage an outside party to do it because there's no point uh, hiring an additional 100 employees uh, for two years and then letting them go after the right. transformation is over. So people typically rely on external organizations. Um, but the issue is, those organizations uh, may be based on a financial model that's based on headcount. 
And um, there are two risks to that model from this. Number one, the transformation itself is delivered at Stewart said at a fraction of the cost because you're doing it for accuracy, you are doing it for precision, you're doing it for speed, but a byproduct of that is it's going to cost less because you're using less human beings and less time, right? Both the headcount and the time frame reduces thereby significantly reducing cost. The second part of that is typically when you do this, there is absolutely no reason for that organization to do away with these factories. They're going to say, you know, our people have learned how to use it. Our SDLC has uh, adopted and absorbed some of these automated processes. Why on earth am I not going to use it to release my next seven releases and three new products? And, and so as that happens, the cost of the total cost of ownership of technology collapses. Your headcount is reduced. Um, you know, your projects are going in much faster. Uh, you are able to rationalize your footprint. So you're using less infrastructure. Uh, you are much faster at going to the cloud. Uh, you have a proper segmentation of data and you build appropriate uh, secure enclaves for data. So you're able to uh, protect yourself. All these things uh, reduce cost and that um, can uh, to some extent challenge a typical business model in the consulting space, which is based on headcount. So these are some of the challenges that the industry has to take head on in order to solve those problems. Stuart, am I, you know, um, you know can you add a little bit to that or? Yeah, no, no, I think, you know, one of the key takeaways is uh, the challenges of align alignment. And, you know, if you engage with a uh, traditional vendor for a traditional transformation project and the project ends up consuming 50% more resources and taking double the time, that's, increased revenue for your partner and decreased operating income for your business. And so those two things are intention. Uh, when you're working on automation, your incentives are aligned. The more you can use automation to uncover legacy business rules and data, the, the better it is for a company like Galaxy and the better it is for you as the customer because you're going to incur less cost, greater quality, and greater cycle time. And then on the provisioning side, when you automate that, once that's up and running, that's sort of a zero friction, almost zero resource other than maintenance um, solution. So again, the driving higher levels of automation is good for you and good for your partner if they're employing the solution. And that gets rid of one of the biggest sources of attention I think in outsourced relationships, which is uh, the economic motive is at odds between the client and the partner. Mm -hmm. And I think you said something interesting that uh, I'll just you know hit back upon is that when you hear it, it sounds because you're you're like it sounds like magic. It sounds like, but really, how are you actually creating perfect documentation? You flung that, like I said, you said perfect a lot. So how are you creating that perfect documentation, machine readable database, um, automatic configuration, you know, zero defect testing. You know, it sounds like something that I'm just like, of course I want to buy it. I don't know if I believe it yet, but of course I want that. Yeah, no, that, it's, those are good questions because automation only gets you so far. Um, the rest of it is the will 
to relentlessly chase down every piece of legacy code and infrastructure, um, to be able to trap, uh, for example, for modules where you don't necessarily have source code, which is a terrible thing. No one should have that situation, but you know we kind of all know it exists. Then you need to trap input and output and use almost forensic skills to be able to figure out what the system is doing. The thing, the thing that this technique does to get you to certainty is that you won't have any unknown unknowns. You know, you, you, will, you will know what you don't know uh, if you apply this approach rigorously and, and take advantage of all the tools. And then it's just a matter of time of tracing and tracking things down. There will be expertise needed. Uh, you will need some amount of uh, SME help, but instead of using, uh, you know, a, a thousand hours of SMEs on a module, maybe you'll use 250. So it's, there's still people there. They still need to look at the output. They need to sign off, but the productivity can be two or three X. And it's important for the client uh, in this case, to pursue this approach fully. And then you can get to certainty because, you know, you know it sounds like magic, but systems are not, they're actually not mysterious. Uh, systems execute uh, blocks of code. They, they uh, run on physical infrastructure. Uh, and so it is, theoretically and in reality possible to understand everything a system could do and does do and be able to track that back. So you, you gotta have the will to do this. If you're doing it manually, it's just incomprehensibly hard, complex and costly. If you can use automation and an increasing amount of the work becomes automated in the discovery, and then everything, once you have a perfect representation of your system, and I'll use that word again, then the software that drives off of it will produce a perfect output. That's the way software works, right? It does the same things over and over again. It doesn't suddenly wake up and decide to do something different. And so that's where we leverage the capabilities of technology to drive the creation and operation of technology and one of the things that I can't help but notice over my years in technology leadership is IT is often the last business function to adopt automation in its operations. And I think that's changed, uh, you know, cobbler's children, right? We're too busy building stuff for our business partners, but you know what? We're often the most significant block of function in determining whether a company will be successful, determining whether customers will be happy. So we need to pay that same attention that we pay to business operations to ourselves and run ourselves in the most automated, cost-effective, high-quality manner possible. I think that's I think that's really insightful. And I'm just going to go back to something I said at the top of the call, which is that mainframes are used by an estimated 71% of Fortune 500 companies. Sandeep, and you mentioned, I believe it was you, Sandeep, and you mentioned that the type of companies and the type of industries that are going to find the most value to this type of, of solution are going to be large scale, um, complex environments that are high speed, high volume um, organizations that are processing millions of transactions, um, likely 24 seven. 
you know, what are, can you give me a broad sweep of what, what type of industries you've seen success um, in with this? There is a, a lot, um, you know, uh, any fortune, 500 companies going to face this issue in one way or the other, whether it is transactions, content, security, um, uh, any different way. Uh, but to Stuart's point, uh, it, uh, what matters is uh, their need, you know, the need of the hour to get past these constraints and to also to Stuart's point, the resolve. Um, and I remember um, when you talk about complex systems, Tracy, um, Stuart was mentioning claims platform. Um, nowadays, claims, some of these bigger claims platforms are tens of millions of lines of code. Wow. The, the issue is that um, to manually evaluate uh, every branch of logic uh, is not, it's not feasible. It can't be done. And so to convert that into a machine readable database where you can query and find out, hey, these data elements, where are they? Or you know, from this system, how do you hop over to the next in the support of this business process? I'll give you some tricks in terms of you know, when you know you're getting there. Um, we find, in, for example, in the project Stuart mentioned, uh, we found issues um, uh, resident in the uh, legacy systems, uh, bugs essentially, right? And uh, the organization that is best able to um, utilize and leverage this uh, automation in the factory uh, is, um, uh, you know, I remember Stuart taking it to the president of the company and saying, this is what's going on. And the business departments wanted to fix those issues. And the president said, no, you don't get to do that on my watch. You're not going to fix those issues because then that will cause disruption for members, for clients, and you're not going to have a perfect zero defect release. Even though you're removing defects, it's going to look like we introduced defects. <laughs> and so the trick of this process we find is, and we get a lot of confidence when you are actually building defects into the future state. And there is a technique by which you do that so that you can bag those defects out through appropriate change management over time. But uh, when you're at the point where you have an inventory of all the defects in your existing system and you are consciously building that into your new system so there is no business impact or customer impact, you know you're getting there. That's, a, that's success. There is, there, there is another aspect where a concept we call reverse certification, which is we run the systems in parallel and we stochastically prove that, um, you know, when is the, you know, basically meantime before failure, when's the first time you may see a defect, we can, we can predict that. And you get that to a level of confidence you're comfortable with, you go live. We don't shut down this process. We uh, call it uh, and, and yeah, continue it. And I think the term may have been coined by Stuart back in the day. So reverse certification is when a, the new system is being used, but you're still running the old system. And through that, uh, you uh, find out before anybody does that there is a difference between past and future. And you can challenge that to say, hey, is that an intended outcome? Is that an intended difference? Or is that an unintended consequence? 
Uh, and so that gives you confidence. Anybody says, hey, you changed something, uh, now it's not working. And you're like, no, the old system did the same thing. So the, the second secret that we have learned over the years is that process takes anywhere between two. We have never seen it taking more than two to three weeks in the history of doing this. Um, so that gives you that level of confidence that we are uh, that accurate and precise in transformation. Because remember, that's not just you transforming n number of lines of code, because it's the, the behavior is a result of those lines of code, uh, you know, tens of millions of rows of data of all the reality that life, you know, thrusts at you, right. infrastructure. So it's a combination of all those elements. And if you have that level of precision, um, it's a good day and you can absolutely achieve it if the organization is willing to adopt some of the principles that Stuart talked about. Well, I think that's a, a great a great way to, to wrap up our discussion today. I appreciate everyone's time today. Any final thoughts before we, we sign off? I'm looking forward to um, the next steps and I think we'll probably have some continued discussions and dig in deeper a little bit about that factory, that software-defined factory that you're talking about. Well, I, I'm, I'm excited to be part of this uh, next stage of transformation in IT and be somewhat of a free agent to talk about it. I can tell you in the past, this was viewed as a competitive advantage where I was before. So the last thing I'm going to do is describe uh, right. how my competitors can get out of the legacy jail they're in. But uh, this really uh, fully realized brings I IT to a level of engineering maturity that I think is, is really going to be transformative for the function and for many of the businesses. So uh, I'm pretty excited to be part of it. Thank you. Sandeepan? Well, thank you very much, Stuart, for spending uh, the time with us today. Um, and you have been a mentor to uh, Galaxy and um, guided us uh, along the way. And you challenged us with these problems. Um, we have um, had a, a philosophy of um, inventing based on um, our um, clients and mentors' needs. And uh, over the years, um, that has been incredibly impactful. Um, for you, but also um, these are some of the problems that we have been facing uh, in uh, our world for many, many years. And, uh, uh, you know, together we have been able to solve some of these right over the years. So uh, really uh, honored to be on the podcast with you, Stuart, and, uh, um, and uh, hopefully we can bring about uh, a change in how people look at technology uh, and get past looking at technology as a cost center and really the leader um, in an organization that um, you know, uh, helps define the future and uh, deliver the vision that uh, business has. So thank you very much. I couldn't agree more, Sandy, but thank you. Thanks guys, appreciate your time today.